there. Welcome to the first episode of the fourth season of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and CrossFit junkie. And I'm Liv, a retired beauty queen and biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. This season, the show is getting even more interesting because we're now two married nerds. Still on a mission, of course. This month, we're bringing on Dr. Charles Nemerhoff, MD-PhD, Department Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and Co-Director of the Center of Psychedelic Research and Therapy at UT Austin's Dell Medical School. His research focuses on PTSD, treatment-resistant depression, and cutting-edge therapeutics for these debilitating conditions. As always, let's get after it. Dr. Nemiroff has concentrated on the biological basis of the major neuropsychiatric disorders, including post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, affective, and anxiety disorders. Recently, his research has focused on the use of genetic, neuroendocrine, neuroimaging, and neurochemical methods to understand the pathophysiology of these disorders. In some of his newest work, he has studied the neurobiological mechanisms that mediate the increased risk for depression and PTSD in victims of child abuse. He has served as the principal investigator of two Kant Center grants, two U19 Center grants on drug development, and a Center grant on prediction of antidepressant response. He has successfully conducted randomized control clinical trials in treatment-resistant depression. Recently, he completed an NIMH grant on identifying predictors of PTSD in adult trauma victims and currently serves as PI on an NIMH grant on postmortem studies in PTSD, as well as the Texas Childhood Trauma Research Network. Dr. Nemiroff, welcome to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So if you don't mind, I'd love to kick things off by learning more about you. Can you briefly tell us about your personal edu- and educational background and kind of what brought you to this point? I was brought up in New York City, lived on the top floor of a walk-up tenement in the Bronx, and um, was able to go to college in New York City, moved to Boston, worked at McLean Hospital in Boston, where I was exposed to psychiatric patients while I was working in a research lab, ended up getting a master's degree at Northeastern, and then my MD and PhD degrees at the University of North Carolina. Did my residency training in psychiatry at North Carolina and at Duke. Stayed on the faculty at Duke for eight years, then became chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Emory University for 18 years then was uh, seduced away to the University of Miami, where I served as chair for nine years. And then four years ago, uh, the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School, which is a new medical school, convinced me to come uh, uh, and, and set up my tent here. And in that process, did you find yourself immediately attracted and interested to psychiatry, or is that something that developed throughout the course of your training? So I I always knew I was interested in neuroscience. And that really, I, I as I was going through my uh, clerkships, which Drew knows quite a bit about now, um, I sort of limited it to three areas. One was neurology, one was psychiatry, and I also thought about endocrinology because my PhD thesis was in neuroendocrinology. And um, I ended up choosing psychiatry because 
it has the wonderful attribute of being able to hear people's life stories. And so it's different than almost any other medical specialty because every, everybody's life story is different. And I bet you've heard quite a few interesting ones throughout your time in the field. You know, um, I love my patients and sometimes I feel like I ought to be paying them <laughs> um, for, the, for the privilege of being able to help them get better. And that's a really remarkable way to look at it. So, so to clarify, you, you currently both do research and see patients. You are maintaining both of those. You're using Thank both you. of your degrees as people like to kind of. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm the chair of the department. So I have 80 faculty in the department. So it's a pretty large department. And I, I see about eight to 10 hours of clinical work a week. Um, and the rest of the time I do research and administration. Awesome. Awesome. So to talk a little bit more about like the research aspect of your practice or professional life, if you will, the treatment resistant depression, I think is, is a hot topic right now, um, in research in psychiatry research in general. Um, can you briefly talk about what makes depression treatment resistant? Like what are some of the diagnostic criteria that it has to meet and what makes it resistant to other treatment? So, you know, as you know, depression is a syndrome that's characterized by a number of signs and symptoms, like all medical syndromes. And the way to think about it is think about the worst day you've had in your life and think about feeling that way every day and not knowing why. And not being able to sleep and having no appetite and um, dwelling on all of your past failures and thinking that you're a burden on the family and thinking that you're both helpless to feel better and feel hopeless about the future. And then you start thinking about maybe life isn't worth living anymore. That's what major depression is like. And it's, it's a disease that's about 40% of the risk is genetic and the rest is environmental. And one of the big environmental determinants is a history of childhood maltreatment. So if you're a victim of child abuse and neglect and you have a genetic risk for depression, you're more likely to end up getting depressed. And if you look at the data, both our studies and others, if you take a group of 100 depressed people and treat them with an FDA-approved treatment for depression, namely an antidepressant or one of the evidence-based psychotherapies, at the very best, 50% of the people will get into remission. And at worst, maybe 30 to 35%. So that means that there's a sizable population of depressed people that don't get better with that first evidence-based treatment. If you fail two or more evidence-based treatments, which as you know, could be medication, it could be therapy, it could be neuromodulation like transcranial magnetic stimulation or um, electroconvulsive therapy. But if you fail two or more of those treatments, you're considered treatment resistant or treatment refractory. And in your research, or maybe just kind of in conversation with other people who study psychiatry and, and particularly depression, is there a characteristic of those patients that tends to be maybe not, you know, a common denominator across the board, but that you see frequently, you know, 
is it the severity of the depression? Is it, you know, perhaps the, the origin that you suspect um, could have led to their depression? Um, is there anything that sort of unites uh, to some extent the people that you often find have treatment resistant depression or does it kind of happen randomly? Do we know enough about it to know why that might be happening? So I think I think there are several sort of um, features of treatment resistant depression. The first is that um, these patients tend to have not just depression, but other comorbid psychiatric conditions. So they'll have uh, panic disorder and depression, post-traumatic stress disorder and depression, um, OCD and depression. So that's one characteristic. The second, as I mentioned earlier, is a higher than usual uh, prevalence rate of a history of childhood maltreatment. The third are comorbid medical disorders. So if you have autoimmune disease, particularly the disorders characterized by high levels of inflammation. So rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, autoimmune diseases of various kinds. And then the sort of classic causes of, of medically induced depression, like, hypo, like thyroid disease, uh, B12 deficiencies, things like that. So treatment-resistant depressed patients tend to be more complex, both psychologically in terms of history, but also in terms of their presentation medically and psychiatrically. So I'm actually really interested in, you mentioned um, that the comorbidities with disorders that tend to lead to high levels of inflammation. Um, you know, there's a lot of research and, and kind of science coming out about all these different axes in the body. You know, the, the gut-brain axis, for example, uh, the heart-brain axis, things like that, where um, all these systems, obviously they're interrelated because they all exist in one body, but we're, we're finding out more and more about all these really interesting and oftentimes surprising ways that they're, you know, maybe not working together, but at least communicating. What are your thoughts on, on why that would be the case? You know, if someone has high levels of inflammation, what could that be doing to their brain that would, you know, impact their psychology? I know something I've, I've read about before is that high levels of stress can increase your levels of inflammation. So obviously it's a little bit, you know, of a different, um, you know, experience than dealing with something like rheumatoid arthritis, um, you know, being stressed is not the same as having that, but you know, it, it all kind of comes down to the, these levels of inflammation in your body and having constant inflammation for one reason or another is so bad for you. Um, why do you think, or I guess to the extent of your knowledge, or maybe you do know, uh, why does that high level of inflammation impact someone's, you know, psychology in that way? Yeah. So we could spend all day talking about this, but I'll be so <laughs> So first there's a bi-directional relationship between the immune system and the brain. The brain can control immune function and, and immune function affects the brain. There was a time when I was a medical student where we were told that the brain was a privileged immune organ. Uh, and we know that's not the case. So uh, there is an intrinsic inflammatory immune system in the brain, which is mediated by microglial cells. But there's a lot of crosstalk between inflammation in the periphery and in the brain. So just to give you a few examples, we used to treat malignant melanoma uh, with interferon alpha. And we would give patients intravenous infusions of, of interferon alpha, which we use for that, and for hepatitis C. 
before we had better treatments. And what interferon alpha would do is cause this huge inflammatory response. So all of the inflammatory markers, all the inflammatory cytokines, CRP, tumor necrosis factor would go sky high, and that would help fight the cancer. About 15% of people that got that treatment became morbidly depressed, and a number of those patients committed suicide. Wow. Before we really understood that that was the case. So... Um, we actually published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that you could start tr- pre-treating people two weeks before interferon alpha with SSRI antidepressants and prevent the depression that you would get with interferon alpha. Wow. So we know that um, um, inflammatory cytokines can enter the brain across the leaky portions of the blood-brain barrier. We also know that there are receptors for inflammatory cytokines on vagal afferents that, of course, then enter the brain. And so there are multiple pathways. And there's a relationship between treatment-resistant depression and inflammatory markers. Now, the the sort of um, secret sauce here may be um, uh, early childhood trauma because it turns out that that's the major determinant of persistent inflammation in adulthood. The other point I'd make in relationship to your very astute question is that there are a number of other factors that cause persistent chronic inflammation, and they include um, sleep disturbance. They include um, issues with the microbiome, namely the gut, and its interface with the brain, stress, not just early in life, but more recent life stressors. A number of those studies were done in medical students before exams, and you could see their inflammation. It was going right up there with their cortisol levels. Right. So it's the perfect storm. The, The fundamental question that we don't know the answer to yet is, is this subtype of treatment-resistant depression characterized by increased inflammation responsive to anti-inflammatory treatments? Interesting. And that's active, an active avenue of investigation. Wow. That's, that, that makes me scared for all the things that I do in my life that cause increased stress or increased inflammation, whether it's diet or stress I put on myself or what have you. But just wanted to switch gears a little bit. Um, I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, in best case scenario, you know, 50% of people with depression go into remission at worst case 30. That seems like a rather low number given the like morbidity of depression. That being said, we know that your some of your research kind of deals with treat like new treatments for treatment resistant depression, including the use of psychedelics. Um, and other um, avenues to treat this treatment-resistant depression. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this exactly, like the function and the mechanism behind this? Because we're, we're kind of curious as to whether it's, is it the hallucinogenic aspect of these compounds or are there other properties that they have that helps it, that helps people with treatment-resistant depression overcome it? So we're, you know, really in our infancy in this area. 
And so, as you probably know, long before you were born, but when I was a younger person and I went to Woodstock, um, you know, there were psychedelics there. <laughs> and then um, there was a backlash during the Nixon and, and Reagan administrations, and they sort of put a kibosh on any research in psychedelics. And then in the last 15 years has been a resurgence. And there are certain aspects of psychedelic research that are really hard to overcome. And one of them is that you can't do a blinded study with psychedelics. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know what? You, you know, if, if you take a psychedelic, you're going to sort of know it. And not only are you going to know it, but the investigator who's interviewing you is going to know it. So there's no blinding. And you both know that that's why we do placebo-controlled studies, particularly in psychiatry, because of the, the concern about, you know, whether the drug really works or expectation or whatever. So the current data would suggest, um, at least with psilocybin, which is the drug that's been studied the most, is that a treatment with psilocybin in a controlled setting in patients with treatment-resistant depression result in a clear improvement in some number of those patients. So I'm putting aside all the anecdotal reports and just talking about the controlled studies. And the response rates, which are defined as a 50% improvement in depressive symptom severity, have ranged from about 35% to about 50%, which for treatment-resistant depression is a big deal. So it's not for everybody. And obviously, um, um, this is done in a controlled setting, so patients are rigidly screened um, because they're not. it's not for everybody for obvious reasons. But um, it looks like there's something there. And the question that Drew asked me is, well, why would it help, right? Why would psychedelics help? And so our working hypothesis is that there are certain psychiatric disorders in which the default mode network in the brain um, becomes what I call the circle of hell. Namely, if you have refractory depression, you're fundamentally saying, I'm a bad person. God's punishing me. I'm worthless. My parents, you know, they don't know what to do with me. I'm, I'm, I'm a bad partner to my spouse. Um, I can't sleep. I can't eat. I can't concentrate. You know, I really ought to kill myself and do the world a favor. And obviously, that's incredibly dysfunctional thinking. What we think psychedelics do is they break you out of that default network, that it that tears away your defenses, and it allows you to have a more realistic look at yourself. And that's why we think these drugs may be helpful in alcohol abuse and addiction and nicotine addiction. There, there's really good data for this and maybe even in other uh, disorders that are characterized by this kind of dysfunctional thinking. Your question about is a psychedelic, is a hallucinogenic experience necessary or not? We don't know the answer. There are two schools of thought about it. 
one school says absolutely, but then there are others who are studying microdosing in which you don't have a psychedelic effect, but you might have a therapeutic effect. Thus far, the data doesn't look great for microdosing, but we haven't seen enough in the way of real studies. The good thing about microdosing is you could blind those studies, right? But, you know, the recent study that just came out on nicotine um, addiction treatment with psilocybin out of Johns Hopkins, they used niacin as the control. You know, niacin gives you a little facial flushing. <laughs> it's not a hallucinogen. Right. So it seems that the kind of the underlying mechanism to some extent is the fact that these drugs are able to induce some sort of neuroplasticity uh, that we as people sort of don't have because we, we tend to, especially people when they suffer from these disorders, um, you kind of get locked into this really repetitive and common um, thought, like thought algorithm almost where whether it's addiction where, you know, your brain can't break out of this process of, oh, I need this substance or I'm craving this substance. If it's PTSD where a certain thought, you know, is inducing some sort of adverse reaction or, or is you're kind of unable to break out of that thought chain that, that these drugs are able to kind of allow you to start reforming those thoughts. Is that sort of what the goal is? And, and how, if this ever comes into practice, how will that be implemented? Because I imagine it's not going to be people you know, going to a dispensary, they go today, for example, for, for THC products um, and just buying some psilocybin and, and self-medicating at home. What does it actually look like in practice? Yeah, I hope not. So I think right. it's practice. <laughs> and I worry about, the, you know, the law in Oregon where they're going to want to make psilocybin available um, and in a non-medical way. So I worry about that. Absolutely. Um, I think the practice would would fundamentally be with trained therapists who are used to dealing with people. Um, psilocybin is a six to eight hour experience. Now, it may yeah. be that there are other and uh, 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 psychedelics, maybe mescaline, for example, or ayahuasca that might have a shorter experience with the same, you know, payoff, if you will. Um, the PTSD issue is really um, dear to my heart. And PTSD has two fundamental characteristics. One is what's known as a, uh, a failure to extinguish fear. Namely, that patients with PTSD fundamentally are unable to learn that it's not dangerous all the time. You know, whether you've mm -hmm. unfortunately been raped or had domestic violence or whether you were at 9-11 or whether you were in the military, um, the world is a scary damn place and you're hypervigilant and you're avoiding um, any reminder of, of that traumatic experience. And unlike most of us who have a bad experience, we eventually extinguish that fear. The second is what's called fear generalization, which is not only do we fear, you know, uh, that fear, but then we start fearing a whole bunch of other fears. And the MDMA data is pretty promising and probably the largest psychedelic effect that actually has been demonstrated. So it is pretty exciting. How this is going to work with FDA approval 
and how it could even work commercially for it to be profitable for a company to develop it remains to be seen. So I guess that's what's next, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm more interested in the science and my own yeah. personal interest is in coupling already uh, uh, effective treatments like TMS or psychotherapy with the psilocybin experience. Because I think if that can open up the brain to be more receptive to these evidence-based treatments, it's sort of what it's, it, I believe that it's not science, but it's a hypothesis. Well, we are excited to see where the science goes. And this is actually one of my favorite um, kind of developments in science to keep up with. Um, you know, it's not something you see a lot in labs and it's very much kind of its own little pocket of, of research, but it is really fascinating to see how much, first of all, how much was going on bef before, you know, we found out about it. I guess perhaps that's a, an age issue, but just how fascinating it is to see these things kind of happen over the last couple of decades um, and how much... Uh, influence other systems have in science and what we're able to do and study and learn. Um, so it's kind of cool to see it from that perspective. And with that, you know, we don't want to take up too much of your time. And we appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us. So thank you so much. Uh, and we look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. All right. See you. Have a great day. Thank you. you. That's all for this week's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at science and society. To catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and our science shenanigans. If you're enjoying our show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find science in society. Be sure to tune in to episode two, coming to you on Monday, June 5th. Peace, love, and science.